Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for Concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ, and to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we're going to discuss why Concord matters for Lutheran hymnody. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion confessor in conversation about this matter today is the Reverend Dr. John Veeker. He serves as senior assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Also notable for this episode, he formerly served as assistant director for the LCMS Commission on Worship. Dr. Veeker, welcome to Concord Matters. Thank you, Sean. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a real honor to have you on and to talk about this great subject. I think probably generally acceptable when most people think about gathering together on Sunday mornings. Definitely one of the chief things is singing hymns together. Amen. It's a very central part of what we do. Of course, the Lord's Supper and everything else, all of it is important. But generally thought of, hymnody is a big thing. And so as we get started with this and talking about hymnody today, I think it may seem kind of basic. But maybe not for a lot of people in our day and age and present times these days. But I think it's probably a good place for us to start is to define what is a hymn. I think for most people, a hymn is one of the songs that they find in a hymnal, particularly in the hymn section of the hymnal. So when they go to church on Sunday, they pick up the hymnal and they're directed to hymn 490, Jesus Lives the Victory One, and that's a hymn as far as they're concerned. Now, people who study this topic of hymnody come up with all kinds of other more precise and uh, variated definitions. One kind of source that I've used is Austin Lovelace's The Anatomy of Hymnody. And what he does in this book is he unpacks it poetically and how texts function with meter and rhyme and that sort of thing, kind of dissects it down to the skeleton, thus the word anatomy. And he has a very broad definition at the beginning. A hymn, he says, can be defined as a poetic statement of a personal religious encounter or insight, universal in its truth, and suitable for corporate expression when sung in stanzas to a hymn tune. I I ran this definition past Herman Stumpfley, a famous hymn writer years ago, when I interviewed him, and he said, I don't really like that definition. It lacks Christocentric focus, lacks any kind of biblical focus, and so he had a much better definition, a much more Lutheran definition. But In a kind of big-picture poetic piece in terms of the text, that's one way to go at it. Another hymn scholar by the name of J.R. Watson, Dick Watson, who's a famous hymnologist in England, he has some things to say about hymns, how they function poetically. He says, traditionally, hymn texts are regarded as second-rate poetic form. You're not as free when you write a hymn text to use a variety of meters and do free verse and that sort of thing. In fact, he quotes Tennyson, who says that a good hymn has to be commonplace and poetical. The moment you cease to become commonplace, it ceases to be a hymn. So if you're like I am, you need to kind of get what that hymn is saying pretty much the first time. You need to understand most of what it's trying to say the first time you sing it. 
on the other hand, you don't want a text to be so transparent that you it's, I don't want to say boring, but maybe that's a word for it, but it doesn't attract your attention to want to spend any additional time with it. And I think of the great Franzman hymn text, O God, O Lord of Heaven and Earth, where there's that line toward the end where he says, Breathe on thy cloven church once more, that in these gray and latter days there may be those whose life is praise, each life a high doxology to Father, Son, and unto thee. Breathe on thy cloven church. Now, I've asked guys, what is, the, what is this cloven church? And I've had all kinds of explanations. Well, usually one. Cloven meaning split, like a cloven hoof is split in two. It's got two pieces to it. I think there's more to it. I think Franzman wrote during a period where the Bible was the King James Bible. He prayed in King James the and thou language. And if you look at what was described in Acts chapter 2 with the tongues of fire, they were cloven in that translation as they hovered over the heads of the apostles. So I would argue this is what Franzman is doing here. Breathe on thy cloven church once more, the church that's been anointed with the fire of the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. So for me, this is Franzman's text, invite more introspection. You get it the first time singing, not really understanding what cloven is. Okay, I'm going to skip over that. But you get the rest of it, that in these gray and latter days, there may be those whose life is praise, each life a high doxology. That for me is an example of a good hymn and a good text and how language needs to work in a hymn, that it needs to be more than just commonplace. And that gets to a next point that Dick Watson makes, which is it needs to be, as it's part of worship, it has to be quickly and easily comprehended. They don't use irony. Nice, not very often. That's something that takes some thought and may or may not be successful. They have to be life expressions of all hearts in the sense that it needs to relate to things that are going on in life, common images. I've seen some hymns uh, from the 21st and 20th century that get way into technical scientific things, believe it or not, there are hymns like that, that are beyond the average person's understanding. That's probably not going to be successful. So getting back to what is a hymn, a hymn is a hymn text, but it also goes with a hymn tune, and we can talk more about the melody and music when we get further along. Yeah, so is there a distinction then between what we would call a hymn, or is it just a church word for song? You know, sometimes you see that debate go on in the broader church and even within the Lutheran church, or just music in general. Are we just saying it's a Christian song, or is there a distinction between these things? I think all hymns are songs at their heart, but hymns are kind of a subcategory of song. And these definitions can be somewhat fluid and overlapping. A hymn, by definition, is strophic, by and large. That means it has stanzas, it has verses. And the first verse has the same number of lines and the same number of syllables in each line, ideally, as the next one, and so forth. Sometimes these stanzas may have a refrain or a chorus at the end. But nevertheless, they're the same from one to the next. They are not what we call through-composed, where it's just a text that doesn't rhyme, it's prose, and the music follows wherever the text goes. That's kind of the strict definition of a text in terms of its structure, now, a song, you could argue, might be more through-composed, like it's often used today. So, for an example of a song in Lutheran Service Book, you might take a look at LSB 939, You Are God, We Praise You. That's the so-called Hillert Te Deum. This was from morning prayer in Lutheran worship, and then it was put into the hymnal in the liturgical or biblical canticle section. You can see the melody there, the text is not rhymed. It doesn't have any repetition to it. 
the melody has some repetition to it to you know to, to assist the singer but basically it follows along with the text that's an example of a song in that kind of looser definition unmetered text we could say also a song might be something that's more structured textually but less so musically so look at 960 isaiah mighty seer in days of old and this is an old one now you can see that luther who wrote this is going on the basis of isaiah chapter 6 when isaiah was in the temple and the lord appeared to him isaiah mighty seer in days of old the lord of all in spirit did behold we've got a rhyme going in there we've got something metered happening it's not just straight text like prose Nevertheless, the melody itself has some minor repetition built into it, but it just follows the rhymed text, and it's one stanza. It's just one big, long verse, and that's why you look down to the bottom, bottom right hand, and it says, peculiar meter. (laughs) It doesn't have a set number of syllables and so forth. And then you can think of an example, I can think of an example of a song that might be more structured musically, but not so structured textually. So here we're going to dip into the deuterocanonical section of the hymnal. (laughs) In addition to the hymns in Lutheran Service Book, the editors added 20 hymns or so that only appear in the accompaniment edition and also in the electronic edition. And here you might want to take a look at something like 982, Blessed Are They by David Haas. Here's an example. You can see that the music is very structured. It's got basically the same melody for all five stanzas plus a refrain at the end, Rejoice and be glad, blessed are you. But it's less structured textually. It doesn't have any rhyme to it. Blessed are they, the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they, full of sorrow, they shall be consoled. And it doesn't have the same exact number of syllables from stanza to stanza. So it's more song-like, looser in its structure. Poetry more relaxed, and the music adapting to the more relaxed poetry. That's really helpful, and... Quite honestly, I'm not sure I've ever had that even laid out to me in my time coming through seminary or 10 years in the ministry now and things like that. And so that's really helpful. I think I want to uh, make a point of clarification here that as we go forward, when we talk about hymnody, what I'll be doing is just speaking broadly of what you said initially of what most people probably think of is it shows up in the hymnal. But it's great to see that variety within the hymnal of kind of what's going on with different pieces that we see show up in there. Yeah. So then, again, thinking broadly of hymnody, it shows up in the hymnal and so forth. Why do hymns exist at all? What's the purpose of hymnody in the life of the church? Uh, What functions should it serve among us in our Christian life together? Well, I'll take that first part, why do hymns exist? And I think this might be a little out of the box for most people, but I would argue that singing and music was built into creation from the beginning because it's connected to God's word, his creative word. You see a glimmer of this in Job chapter 38, where Job has spent all of 38 chapters complaining, and his friends have been complaining about his tragedies and life, and Job doesn't curse God, of course, but in the end, he meets God in a whirlwind, or God comes to him in a whirlwind, and out of that whirlwind, Yahweh says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have any understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? And here's the punchline. Who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy. This is a reference to the angels who were created beings, but they were singing 
already at the very beginning, after they were created, which was very early on, they were singing at creation. And C.S. Lewis takes a little literary license in his Chronicles of Narnia and really pulls this out, as does Tolkien in his Cimmerillion. It describes the creator singing Narnia into existence. It's a beautiful piece in The Magician's Nephew. Okay, well, that gets a little out there and a little philosophical, but I would argue that God's people have always been singing, and they sing God's word back to him. They praise him by using his own words back to him, and we'll get more on to that later. In the Old Testament, it was the Psalter, the collected edition of all of the songs of God's holy people, 150 of them in the collection, some of them very short, like Psalm 117, one or two verses or some of them very long, Psalm 119 with 22 sections, uh, acrostic, built on the basis of the Hebrew alphabet. So God's people were singing, and Jesus and his disciples in the New Testament would have known this Psalter intimately. Of course, Jesus was the Son of God, and he wrote it, so he knows it. But even as man, he would have grown up singing these words. And this gets back to a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, which is Psalms were really intended to be sung, not spoken. Now, most of the time, we're not able to speak them, but they were written to be music. They were written to be sung, and they were sung by Jesus, you know, in synagogue worship, and also as he went to the temple and was part of that cultus as well. And even on the night when he was betrayed, the gospel writer in Matthew says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went to the Mount of Olives, and we know what happened after that. This was very likely one of the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 to 118. So Jesus himself was a singer. Jesus himself and his disciples used the songs of the Old Testament, the hymnal of the Old Testament. So that's why hymns exist. They've always existed. Certainly in the Old Testament and intertestamental church, and then in the New Testament church. I think that the classic passage for this is Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another on all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. Paul is making the argument here, and he does the same thing in Ephesians, that the word of Christ dwells in you richly through the singing of these psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing the Old Testament Psalter, of course, would be those psalms that the church inherited from the Old Testament, from the scriptures. It's very interesting. The Psalter is the most quoted book in the New Testament, 68 times. And what's the next most quoted book? Isaiah, 55 times. And Isaiah is what? 90% poetry, right? And you can, I could make the argument too, and I think others would too, that Isaiah is mostly song. It's certainly poetry. So all of the Psalms that are quoted in the New Testament from the Old were intended to be sung. These are quotations of hymns. So God is speaking in the New Testament when he's digging from the Old Testament quite a bit out of the poetry and the hymnody that God's people had already knew and it impacted their hearts through the singing of it. So that's the psalms of the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then I would say the hymns of the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that Paul is talking about would be the New Testament canticles that the church writes, uh, that God inspires by the Holy Spirit. So, for instance, in Luke chapter 1, the song of Mary, the Magnificat, the song of Zechariah, the Benedictus, the song of Simeon, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace. And finally, the song of the angels there at the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. 
these early canticles of the church become part of the hymns that Paul is referencing. Also, I think you can jump into other possible Christ hymns that scholars have identified in the New Testament. For example, and we'll get back to it later, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Many scholars identify this as a hymn with two stanzas. You count the syllables up between each of those two stanzas. There's, in Greek, there's 88 in one and 87 in the second. So they're almost identical in length and three lines each with sublines and all of that sort of thing. Very interesting. A classic hymn of Christ, about Christ. Same with Colossians 1, 15 to 20. And then, of course, the song of Revelation, the Dinus S, Worthy Are You, Revelation chapter 5. And there are other songs in Revelation. And then finally, the spiritual songs of the Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that Paul is talking about in Colossians 3.16. Ralph Martin, a New Testament scholar, suggests that these may be snatches, quote, snatches of spontaneous praise which the inspiring spirit placed on the lips of enraptured worshipers. Their contents would quickly be forgotten. So kind of just whoops and hollers and songs that different members are singing in the midst of worship. I suppose that's possible. But I'm more inclined to think of these as hymns that were already being developed and would later be developed hymns based on the Holy Scriptures, based on the charisma, the preaching of Christ, based on the gospel, the good news, and that proclaim the cross and the empty tomb. Uh, We'll have more to say about that later. So even as you laid out that in our hymnal today, we have a distinction of what we might broadly say is hymns. Mm -hmm. Uh, We see this distinction even with Paul. As you brought in the Colossians passage, I also think of Ephesians where he says a similar thing, and he actually says, When you speak to one another, do it this way. And I think that maybe leads into another follow-up question here. And I love that image. It maybe is a little bit to ponder and a little outside the box for us. But I love that image that since creation, we have been singing. That's just a beautiful thought. But yet, we live in a culture, especially here in the United States, that is in a lot of ways post-music in general, post-singing previous times you would have seen people just singing along as they worked and so forth. And you just don't see that as much in our culture anymore. Mm -hmm. And even in our Lutheran schools, we struggle to keep music programs going. You know, it's tough when you're fighting a cultural battle. And of course, many of the public schools and things have long abandoned music programs and things like that. And so all of that has maybe contributed to being post-singing. But then I think also maybe highlighted by this past year with COVID concerns and the concerns over singing and the spreading of droplets and making others sick and so forth. I think our congregations have had to wrestle with what is the benefit or what what is the need for us to sing as a Christian congregation, especially, again, when there's maybe concerns of a danger of spreading illness and so forth. Help us wrestle through that a little bit. Is it as simple as, well, God's word says this is how you speak to one another, or is there maybe a better benefit or some other benefit as well? It's a great question. I would argue that singing in church is what the church does and has always done. Now, as we've dealt with this pandemic, we've handled it differently in different places. And I'll just go right into that because it's on everybody's mind. Some congregations chose to have no worship for a while, to do it online only. And the pastor and maybe a couple of people were present, socially distanced and all that sort of thing, being the congregation. Some chose to do it with the rules of capacity that were provided by the county or whatever. Masking, I think, was important, has been important all along for people. 
especially singing, because COVID is a respiratory disease and spread through the air primarily. All these decisions get worked out a little bit differently in different places. I know that some whole denominations shut down completely, shut all their churches down because they could. The Missouri Synod isn't quite structured that way, and I would not have thought that would be a good idea anyway. I think when you come back this Easter, as we all did, everybody must have realized they missed the singing. They missed singing together. I think most congregations, at least in the Missouri Synod, were back together for Easter, at least in some capacity, and were singing. In the congregation where I worship, we all have to wear masks, and we do, but we've never had any evidence of anything being spread that way. We did have social distancing up in the choir loft with a maximum of 15 or something. It's a very large loft. You could gather together and speak the hymns. The words matter, I would argue. The words are what matter the most. So, yes, you could have a completely spoken service, but still you're breathing. You're probably not breathing as much as if you were singing. There is benefit to enjoying a hymn, though, by just reading it out loud to yourself or to put the words in a form that they show up like the extra stanzas at the end in poetic form instead of broken up with the music. You start to see a little bit how the hymn is structured and maybe understand its meaning better. I guess the other choice is not to gather at all. I don't think there were many that did it that way. So with all of that, the role of hymns in a congregation's life is absolutely critical. Hymns have a proclamatory function, and I'll speak a little bit more about that later, but they proclaim. This is something uniquely Lutheran. They proclaim Christ. Like Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as we sing back and forth to each other. And that makes me think about the nature of singing as we're singing back and forth. Most of the Old Testament Psalter is written in parallel. In Hebrew, you don't rhyme with sound. You rhyme with meaning. So the first line is going to say something, and then the second line will say something that is similar in meaning, or maybe more expansive in meaning, or the opposite in meaning, antithetical parallelism. But it's always a back and forth. And I would argue that's the way it is in our life with God, when we are confessing to him this great word from the New Testament, ex homilegesthai, from Philippians chapter 2, which we'll talk about later, that every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's the first creed. Jesus is Lord. And to confess that is to say back to Hama Lego, to say the same thing back to God that he has spoken to us. So God has spoken to us that we are by nature sinful and unclean, and we say amen. Yes, we are by nature sinful and unclean. And then he speaks to us his precious absolution in Christ, You are forgiven because of Christ's blood and righteousness. And we say, Amen. And we confess all of this. We say this back to God in our hymns and in our songs and in our spiritual songs. You mentioned in there, in connection, bringing back in that Colossians passage, that the word of Christ would dwell in you. And I think you said that you would say the text is the main thing. Mm -hmm. And as I've wrestled with the post-musical culture that we're in, I'll sometimes have parishioners that come to me and they say, I'm just not good at singing, and it's a real struggle for me. And so what I've often encouraged them to do is to focus on the text, to make sure they read the words and let that word of Christ really dwell in them and benefit from that sermon that they're receiving that the rest of the congregation can sing along. But then that makes me think of another question that I think is also important when we're talking about hymnody. So you're not only a pastor and theologian, 
but you're also an accomplished and very excellent musician. I, I believe I've told you before, and I'll just say it on the air here too, that every time you play for doxology events or other places that I've, I've heard you play, it's such a wonderful delight to just hear the music that you play. And so as that relates to being a musician with the text of these hymns, are there musical considerations that correlate to our hymnody that should be taken into consideration as well? Well, yeah, I would say that music always matters. I mean, the classic example of this would be to sing the hymn Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island. I won't even do it because it's a... (laughs) But just imagine that, okay? What would be the problem with that? I've actually heard some people try to argue that that's okay to do. Okay, maybe it is somewhere. But in a culture that would not have any clue as to what Gilligan's Island was, to sing Amazing Grace, it's a tune, it's a sea shanty, that was written by someone in Hollywood and became, you know, totally identified with this three-hour tour of crazy people that got stuck on an island, okay? Not carrying the weight and the breadth and the beauty of this wonderful hymn by Newton, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. So there's an example where you definitely wouldn't want to use that tune. Music does matter. There are limits to what kind of music you might use to accompany a sacred text. But there are more nuanced questions. Like, take a look at Hymn 361, A Little Town of Bethlehem. Now, as Missouri Synod Lutherans, we know this melody very well. It was written here in St. Louis. That's why it's called St. Louis. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. And so forth and so forth, okay? It puts you in the zone, doesn't it, on Christmas Eve? Now, imagine that text also being sung by the tune on the right hand, which is called Forest Green. It invokes a little bit different image in your mind. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. That makes you think of, you know, Westminster Abbey Choir Boys. A much more kind of, I don't want to say genteel, less romantic, less heartfelt kind of incarnation. <laughs> okay? I'm just giving you kind of a musician's spin or feel of these two texts. Now, that second tune that I sang is probably the more ecumenical melody for this text. So there's an example where music, even with the same text, can make a little bit of difference. I think if you took a very strongly associated Christmas tune and sang it, You know, if you sang um, Hark the Herald Angels Sing to a national anthem text or something, or, you know, something from Pentecost, you'd kind of go, how did this get here? That's, That's an Easter, or that's a Christmas melody. Same with Jesus Christ is risen today, if you put that over for Thanksgiving. Now, sometimes we have overlap, don't we? Like the one that we sing every Thanksgiving, come you thankful people, come, bum, ba dun, is also used during Epiphany. So you have some overlap of melodies, but I just wanted to try to give you an example of sometimes how music can make a difference. I think in the parish, you know, growing in understanding and appreciation of new hymns really only happens when the pastor and the musician are willing to teach the hymns. And by that, I mean use sound pedagogical methods to do that. And one of the most sound methods is repetition is the mother of learning. The best way to teach new hymns in the parish and help people to learn them is to focus on the melody. Most everybody knows how to read the text, but they don't know how to read the music. 
So maybe there's an unfamiliar melody that you want to teach. You need to use it more than just one Sunday, throwing it at people. I would argue, have a soloist sing it. I remember one musician in the parish, he said, yeah, I wanted to teach this new melody. And so I just had a soloist or choir sing it for about two months. And finally, someone came up to me and said, when are we going to get to sing that melody? (laughs) Okay, now it's time to sing that melody. They had learned it. When I was in the parish, I had a goal of trying to teach six new melodies during a calendar year from September to May. I didn't try to do anything in the summer because that's always a crapshoot in terms of attendance. But most people would be there during the rest of the year. And if we could learn six new melodies, and those would often be associated with more than six texts, because if you choose your melodies wisely, they're going to have more than one text that go with them. And within a few years, the people had really come to appreciate some new texts and new melodies that they didn't know before. A lot of excellent thoughts there. We need to go ahead and take a break here, but when we come back, we'll go deeper into the discussion of the main thing, as I think you called it there, which is the text and how it confesses our Christian faith. So we'll pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. The word of Christ comes forth from his mouth as a sharp, two-edged sword. By that word, he puts our sin to death, and he raises us to new life in him. Join me, Pastor Timothy Apple, on Sharper Iron every weekday morning at 8 a.m. here on KFUO, as guest pastors from around the world lead us into the word of God to help us sharpen our faith in Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. John Veeker about why Concord matters for Lutheran hymnody and wonderful thoughts there about how I was sharing with you over the break that one of my organists in the dual parish is my wife and she learned organ at Concordia Ann Arbor from Dr. Blursch and she always talks about how he would teach it's that perfect marriage between text and tune and I really like how you laid that out for us but as we've said a couple times on the show now, the text is kind of the primary thing, especially bringing back that Colossians passage that the word of Christ would dwell in you richly. And so as we consider the text and how we use them, there are some traditions, at least historically, and I think maybe there were maybe more traditions historically than maybe there are today, but there's certainly still some around today that have only sung the Psalms or other scripture texts, what we might call those biblical canticles that you talked about earlier. So why do Lutherans have hymns that are more than just the direct quotes from Scripture? That's a great question, and it goes back really to Luther's understanding of Catholicity. By that I mean the church universal. I think sometimes as Lutherans we may think that when Luther showed up, he just cleared the table and started everything new and flipped a light switch and all of a sudden everybody was singing hymns. That's not exactly what happened, not at all. Luther began to reform the church in Wittenberg and institute reforms along with the elector and the pastors and all the folks there. It was a slow, slow grind, and his biggest concern was that he not leave people behind, not leave them behind in terms of their piety and in terms of their understanding of what was happening. And that is why our liturgy to this day is very parallel to what you observe in the Roman Catholic Church. 
he basically purified it, took out the parts that were prayers to saints and other things that were not biblical, and kept the rest of it. And why is that? Because it's 98% right out of the Bible. So he saw this as a great thing, as yet, back to Colossians 3.16, the word of God dwelling in us richly as we're singing. That it wasn't just the textual reforms that he was implementing, but also musical. If you take a look at the hymns that he wrote, he wrote some 37 hymns. He wrote about two-thirds of them during the years 1523 to 24, within 18 months. And he says very intentionally that he was writing these as examples for how others might go about doing this. He was very intent on reinstituting congregational song in the Church of Wittenberg and in the Lutheran lands. And so he wrote about 20 hymns along these lines, and they followed along basically three categories. The first was psalm paraphrases, and an example of that would be Psalm 131, From depths of woe I cry to thee. So if you take a look at hymn number 607 in LSB, there is Luther's paraphrase of Psalm 130, From depths of woe I cry to thee. And if you take that 607 and you just put it alongside Psalm 130, you'll see it almost parallels identically to the way the psalm is set up. What he's done is he's taken the meaning from the psalm and he's rhymed it. He's metrified it. Very close. That was one approach that he used. Now, a second approach would be hymn 656, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, or 657, depending on, I would go with 656. That is ostensibly, he, as he would say, a paraphrase of Psalm 46. But after you get past the first line, a mighty fortress is our God, a trusty shield and weapon, then you get into the old evil foe who works deadly woe, deep guile and great might, then we're off into, though devils all the world should fill all eager to devour us, it's like apocalyptic, okay? <laughs> it's not exactly following if you'd look at Psalm 46, line for line, what's going in Psalm 46. So he was doing an interpretation, a midrash on Psalm 46 based on what was going on in Wittenberg at the time. And as far as we can tell, it was probably the time of plague. He likely wrote this hymn around 1529, and they'd had a plague about a year before that. So he's reflecting on all of the ills and the evil things that are going on in the world and putting this into song and interpreting it interpreting the scriptures in light of current events. And this is the wonderful result. So he's a psalm interpreter. He takes psalms, but he also is free to write hymns that are festival hymns, hymns that reflect other thoughts, other biblical thoughts that are not necessarily written down all in one place. So take a look at 458. Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands. This is a wonderful Easter hymn that Luther wrote. And it draws from all over the scriptures. If you look at the bottom right corner of the first page, it'll tell you that it comes out of 1 Corinthians 15 and so forth, 2 Timothy 1. If you do the electronic edition, which most parishes have, there's a line-by-line -line analysis of all the biblical texts, over 10,000 biblical texts. And so you could find out exactly where from scripture he pulled these various lines, like stanza 4. It was a strange and dreadful strife when life and death contended. The victory remained with life. The reign of death was ended. Holy Scripture plainly saith that death is swallowed up by death. Its sting is lost forever. Alleluia. So, powerful stuff, 1 Corinthians 15, happening there, festival hymns. 
And then the third category that you could say Luther wrote would be catechism hymns. And one big example of that would be hymn 954, We All Believe in One True God. That is a paraphrase of the Nicene Creed. And I wrote a paper once, did a study on this to see, now what all, based on the Latin of the Nicene Creed and the German of Luther's text, what all did he include and not include? And by George, he got just about all of it in, which is an amazing feat, rhymed. And yet he has a sense of Catholicity. He has used a very old melody that had already been in existence from about the 14th century. So he's using a churchly melody to put this hymn text, this catechism hymn text, together. And the six chief parts of the catechism, so there are basically there are six catechism hymns, although they debate over which one is the Lord's Supper catechism hymn. So he's writing these hymns for various purposes. He puts examples together like this, and people catch on. Eventually, this results in a hymn explosion in Germany and elsewhere. Tens of thousands of hymns result from these handful of hymns that he wrote in 1523, 24. So as we consider then, as you laid out right at the beginning of that, that we tend to think at times that Luther really just changed everything. And I like how you brought us back to it's something we tried to emphasize on this show quite a lot, especially when we read through the Book of Concord and provide that audio commentary as we go, that we're constantly going back to this is what the church has always been, that Catholicity, yes. as you talked about. Um, so... As we consider then Lutheran hymnody and how influential Luther himself was, once again, seeing variety and how he uses music and hymnody and what he writes for the church, how does Lutheran hymnody relate to, compare to hymnody in other Christian traditions? Where do we have common ground or concord, we might say, on concord matters? And where are there real Lutheran distinctions? That's a great question. You have to ask yourself, first of all, what is a Lutheran hymn? Does it mean that it's a hymn written by a Lutheran? Or does it mean a hymn that's being used by Lutherans? Or a hymn that appears in a Lutheran hymnal? Those are all kind of different ways to slice and dice it. And if it's a Lutheran hymn written by a Lutheran, that's the definition. Okay, when, where, who. There's, of course, different qualities of Lutheran, isn't there? <laughs> you know, And different qualities of hymn writing. And there's some great hymns not written by Lutherans that we love. You ask the average pew sitter, name their favorite Lutheran hymn, and it's probably not going to be a hymn written by a Lutheran. I think only 42% of the hymns in LSB are written by Lutherans. Now, this is rather unique to our American situation because, of course, we are a melting pot here. And that's part of it. But the other part of it is when we came over as German immigrants, at least in the Missouri Synod, we kind of lived in a German ghetto for the first 60 to 70 years, still singing in German, still singing our almost all Lutheran hymns written by Lutherans from the 16th and mostly 17th century. But then, you know, it came time to begin understanding English, and we all, by the second or third generation, knew English too, but we still wanted to worship in German. And we began to say, now, what kinds of hymns written by non-Lutherans could be usable within our Lutheran context? And this was explored very early by Walther and his student, August Kroll. They began to assemble small collections and put this together. And eventually, uh, we ended up with this kind of eclectic approach to hymnody. I would argue that the hymnal that we sing from every Sunday is the most ecumenical thing in the Missouri Synod. Of course, it's not hard to be ecumenical. What I'm trying to say is we're not the most ecumenical church body in the usual sense of the word. 
But if you want to say a hymnal that has songs written by all kinds of Christians from all different confessions, yeah, that's our hymnal. And that is a good thing because we only accept hymns in our hymnal that we believe are biblical, that they confess what the scriptures say, that they clearly proclaim Christ crucified and risen for us, and that they are part of the great tradition, part of who we are as Lutherans. So, again, what is a Lutheran hymn? I guess it depends on the definition, but it is definitely hymns that confess Christ and proclaim Christ. We're going to come back to that in a second here, but as you bring up things that are included in our hymnal, and I think you said about 42% are written by Lutherans, you previously spent, I think it was about 12 years, if I have that right, serving as the assistant director of the LCMS Commission on Worship. And in that time, our excellent hymnal, the Lutheran Service Book, was produced and has had great effect in the congregations. I will say that as I serve a dual parish, one of my congregations still uses the old TLH. I grew up with that and I'm familiar with that as well. Of course, also had Lutheran worship. And the other congregation has the TLH and the Lutheran service book. And as I've served that dual parish, I've really come to realize something that you already kind of hinted at is that the TLH, one of those early hymnals, not the first, but one of those early English hymnals as we were trying to make that transition here in America. And I've really come to realize as I've lived in the TLH for the last five years now serving that dual parish, that there is a definite American revivalism influence on a lot of hymnody. There are a lot of things that I really appreciate about TLH, and this is much debated, especially by pastors and musicians within the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod as to what's superior and things like that. I'm not really interested in getting that in here. But as you got to working on the Lutheran Service Book then, which I think is a very Lutheran hymnal, especially when we bring it back to confessing Christ, very well done on this project. And so I guess kind of a basic question, how do you guys evaluate what makes it into a Lutheran hymnal? Yeah, actually, Lutheran Service Book was really a project that was trying to unite the synod that had two hymnals at the time. Lutheran Worship had been printed and published in 1982, I believe, and because of a variety of reasons, had never successfully been accepted in the majority. Well, it was the majority, 58%, were using Lutheran worship, but there was a good 34% that were using TLH still from 1941. And so one of the goals of this project, at least in its hymnody and also in its liturgy, was to try to bring these two traditions together in a way that would be salutary for the service in the congregations. And you could go on and on at length about that. But that was also true in terms of the hymn selection. But we had very clear criteria what we were looking for with hymns. We were looking, of course, first at the hymns in our two hymnals. And I think we ended up with 458 in that first pass. And to that, then we added new hymns that came in either through Hymnal Supplement 98. There were probably 80 that came out of that and then others that had come up since Hymnal Supplement 98. But the criteria that we used were pretty basic. First of all, there was a theological component. Was the hymn Christocentric? Did it have a good law gospel focus? Was it sacramental? Now, when I say all of these things, you have to understand that no hymn can do everything, okay? But these are the kinds of things we were looking for. The second kind of criterion was the musical question. Was the melody able to be sung congregationally? Did the melody have integrity? And, of course, that's a very subjective <laughs> criterion, but the folks around the table knew what they were looking for, okay? Okay. Music as a servant of the text. 
Did the music distract from the text, or did it serve the text? And was there a kind of timeless quality? I see that word written here in this uh, on this list. I'm not so hot on the word timeless because we're all stuck in time. <laughs> but something that would serve more than just the present day. It's not a flash in the pan. Then a third kind of area, liturgical setting of the text and the music. Does it support the lectionary, okay? Does it fit in with into the liturgy in some fashion or have a churchier focus? Uh, does it look like it has an ability to endure? And that's getting on back to the timeless piece. Then there was the pastoral component. Could the hymn be used catechetically to teach the faith? Did it support individual piety and topics that were related to our faith journey? Was it sensitive to the LCMS and its past hymn corpus? Those kinds of pastoral questions. You, If you had left out a hymn like, Jesus Christ is risen today, you'd have a big problem, Houston. And we would never leave that one out, but, you know. And then finally, the Catholicity. And by Catholicity, I think it's important to make it distinguish, you know, kind of the church universal. And I like to look at it, the church universal of time. So all of the saints who've come before us and who will come after us, but also the Catholicity of space, where we live right now, the church Catholic throughout the world today. And for instance, we have a number of hymns from so-called world hymnody. So from places like Tanzania and Madagascar that have come back after the missionaries went over there in the 19th century, early 20th century, now indigenous melodies and indigenous texts that are wonderfully confess Christ are coming back to us here in North America. So that kind of ethnicity, historical Catholicity is also important. One of the things you talked about in there is, you know, if we left out Jesus Christ is risen today, this may be a little side tangent, but I think plays into some of that criteria that you laid out as well. One of the things that I think I've recognized, my favorite hymn is Lord, the I love with all my heart. Mm -hmm. And I think that was lost on a generation through Lutheran worship. Mm -hmm. And it's not to condemn anyone. I, it was produced the year before I was born, so I wasn't even around when those things were going on. But in Lutheran worship, it was Lord, you I love, which just doesn't have that same poetic mm -hmm. nature to it. And mm -hmm. I, I think a lot of congregations just stopped using it in that time. How did those sorts of considerations and play in as well that we're returning to the way that this hymn has been sung by, for instance, my grandfather, which would have known that mm -hmm. very well as well? Absolutely. Yeah, I think there was a lot of what we call downdating as compared to updating. So in that case, that was a text where we returned to the older Jacobian language, the older language, because we thought it, especially in that first line, just sang better and worked better. We kind of made distinctions, too, in terms of old language. We had words that we would say were archaic, like the word the. It sounds old, but you still know what it means. Okay, those would still be usable. But words that were what we called obsolete, in other words, they were, they sounded old and they looked weird and you, nobody really knew what they meant anymore. Those, we tried to avoid those. And if we did have to use one, we would try to define what it meant down below. <laughs> we had a few of those. So the use of language, I think, was important. And I would say in that, with that hymn, too, you know, my story is a little different than yours. That's, I actually learned that hymn from Lutheran worship. And I grew up Missouri Synod, but I had never sung that till I went to the seminary in 1983. And, of course, when I became a pastor then to sing that final stanza that was in the Lutheran worship little agenda at the bedside for the commendation of the dying, yeah, that's powerful stuff. And I think there were a couple lines that had been kind of monkeyed with in L.W. there that got restored. 
although I'll always know it with the LW version, because that's, <laughs> that's how I learned it. So, yeah, those kinds of considerations. LW Project was very intent on updating language, and that meant as much as possible to eliminate the these and the thous. And, of course, a lot of lines rhymed with the or ended in the with an e sound, and so then that line had to be rewritten to oo, you, and then you have to have a different rhyme, and you're into a whole other remodeling of the house, okay? <laughs> you thought it was just going to be a toilet replacement, and now you have to gut the bathroom. So, yes, these are the things, the joys of a hymnal project. But And then again, it relates again to what we're doing with a hymn and singing our confession. Mm-hmm. And, and, well, and as I say that, maybe that's a good place to go next. You know, a lot of times as Lutherans, and I think we've said it several times already here, we talk about singing our confession. Well, well, what does that mean? And what does it mean to be a confessional hymn? Well, I think any hymn that speaks of Christ, that proclaims Christ, that says back to God what he's said to us about Christ, that Jesus is Lord, however you're going to unpack that original creed, because Jesus is Lord was the kind of original creed and all the other things that we say about Christ in the scriptures that are revealed to us flow out of that. However you're going to go about doing that, if it's in a hymn and it confesses biblically and in an orthodox way accurately, then it is a confessional hymn, whether it was written by a Methodist or a Missouri Synod Lutheran or whomever. Now, I would argue that some of the best hymn writers are written by Lutherans who are confessional in a Lutheran confessional sense. And you see that certainly in the, uh, in the early years. You, know, you can take an example, uh, do a kind of compare and contrast with LSB 556. This is one of Luther's early hymns, Dear Christians, One and All Rejoice. And what he does there is tell the story of how we are lost without Christ, fast bound in Satan's chains I lay, death brooded darkly o'er me. Sin was my torment night and day, and sin my mother bore me, and so forth. Like three stanzas, four stanzas of law there. And then he gets to the fifth stanza. This is a ten-stanza hymn, by the way. God said to his beloved son, It's time to have compassion. Then go, bright jewel of my crown, and bring to all salvation. From sin and sorrow set them free. Slay bitter death for them, that they may live with you forever. And it just goes on from there. Wonderful confession of Christ, who he is, what he's done. The Father is speaking to the Son. The Son is speaking Though he will shed my precious blood, me of my life bereaving, all this I suffer for your good. Be steadfast and believing. Life will from death the victory win. My innocence shall bear your sin, and you are blessed forever. So in these ten stanzas, Luther tells the kind of salvation history of our need for Christ because of our sin and what Christ has done for us and atoned for us and raised for our justification. It's all very objective. It's very it's very biblical. You don't see much me going on in this hymn. Maybe stanza of three gets into that a little bit. My own good works all came to naught. But mostly it's God is doing, and I'm not that involved other than I'm at the receiving end. Now, of course, Luther was confessional, wasn't he? Okay, let's compare and contrast that to another great confessor from about a century later, Paul Gerhardt. Take a look at hymn 467, one of my favorite hymns, Awake My Heart with Gladness. Paul Gerhardt lived 1607 to 76, right in the middle of the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 48, and a whole long story about Paul Gerhardt 
when he died, they, his congregation where he died erected a life-size painting of him, and it, beneath it, it's written in Latin, Paul Gerhardt, a theologian, sifted in Satan's sieve, and afterwards found faithful. He really suffered a lot. All of the war, and then he lost his wife, and he lost three of his four children, I think. But here's an example with 467, where in spite of all this suffering, he writes this joyful hymn, and he writes it in a first-person sense. Awake my heart with gladness. See what today is done. Now after gloom and sadness comes forth the glorious sun. My Savior there was laid where our bed must be made, when to the realms of light our spirit wings its flight. And then stanza five. The world against me rages, its fury I disdain. Though bitter war it rages, its work is all in vain. My heart from care is free, no trouble troubles me. Misfortune now is play, and night is bright as day. I just love that line, no trouble troubles me. Misfortune now is play, and night is bright as day. So he's writing in a first-person singular, almost throughout, but he writes it in a, in a way that every Christian can sing it and confess the resurrection of Christ. And for me, this hymn reminds me always of my father in Christ, Herb Miller, who was a district president in southern Illinois and also first vice president here at Synod, who died about a year ago at 67 or 68, not very old, from cancer. But he loved this hymn, and he said, you have to sing this one at my funeral, which we did in spite of COVID. We had a small funeral, and I was the organist. And he said, John, when you play that last stanza, pull out all the stops. <laughs> he brings me to the portal that leads to bliss untold, whereon this rhyme immortal is found in script of gold. Who there my cross has shared finds here a crown prepared. Who there with me has died shall here be glorified. It's absolutely gorgeous. Paul Gerhardt, absolutely a beautiful confessor of the faith. Luther as well. One of the things that comes out is because they are they're doing so much in confessing the faith. You mentioned 10 stanzas for Luther's hymn, seven stanzas here for Gerhardt's hymn, Maybe a, a seemingly unimportant thing, but for some people in the pews, it seems like an important thing. Comes up for a lot of pastors. Do we have to sing all the verses? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, I usually correct and say stanzas, right? You know, but, uh, yeah, yeah. but yeah, how would you respond to that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that Luther 10 stanza hymn is a little unusual for Luther. Most of his hymns are not that long. The long hymn stanza hymns came into German Lutheranism and German hymn writers in the 17th century. At a time, mostly because of the Thirty Years' War, there were fewer churches. They'd been burned down, and so the devotional life of the individual became more important. And you have quite a number of pastors, including Gerhardt, who wrote meditations, hymn meditations on the biblical texts, even for that Sunday. So they'd have a collection of hymn for every gospel of every Sunday. And that would, they would be long hymns, sometimes 22 stanzas. Now, these were for their people to meditate on during the week. They might not be able to come to church. There might not be a church. There might not be a church for another five years until the war is over. It was a 30 years war, after all. So this kind of devotional approach came in. That's where a lot of these longer hymns came from, and they frankly weren't sung in church during that time. They were for devotional use. Now, how do you work that out today? I know some guys who are like, yeah, that's the problem with LSB. They cut out all the great stanzas. And so the next hymnal will have to play the real estate game and 
<laughs> those guys will have to decide whether they really want to not have another hymn because they insisted on doing all 15 stanzas of this one. Yeah, that's always an interesting piece. So I don't know. I think it's certainly okay to abbreviate hymns on Sunday morning. Maybe you break them up into different parts of the service. If it's a longer hymn, you really want to sing them all. But you might have a congregation that really wants to sing all stanzas of all hymns, and it's a different setting, and that's great, too. Yeah, absolutely. So much more that I would love to talk about. I could just talk all day about hymnody with you and just have really enjoyed today. But with just a couple minutes left here, I want to get your parting thoughts, just kind of wrap up for us today. Why does Concord matter for Lutheran hymnody? How is this a confessional matter? What's the great importance and takeaway for us today? Singing hymns is what Christians and people of God have done from day one. And I mean, like, the first day there were human beings. They were singing, okay? We've been singing God's Word. We've been proclaiming His praises to one another and to all the earth on the wings of song. So hymns are just yet another manifestation of this great confessing. Confessing God and His mercy for us in His Savior and in the redemption that He won for us at Calvary and the victory that He promises us on the last day of resurrected bodies to be with Him forever. Thank you so much, Dr. Vicker. It's been a great honor having you join us for Concord Matters today and discussing with us why Concord matters for Lutheran hymnody. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church. Thank you.